Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. A reminder, the NYPD is asking for the public's help tonight. They're looking for this man, 62-year-old Frank James, who they say is a person of interest in the investigation of the New York City subway shooting. They believe he rented the U-Haul van whose keys were found at the scene. Police are investigating whether he has any connection to the shooting and have not named him as a suspect. Anyone with information on this person of interest or the shooting is encouraged to call the NYPD at 1-800-577-TIPS. Police say the U-Haul van was found just blocks away from the subway station. According to U-Haul records obtained by CNN, the van was rented Monday afternoon in Philadelphia and Frank James was used a Wisconsin license with a Milwaukee address. Stay with CNN for the latest on the investigation. The news continues, so let's hand it over to Jake Tapper in Lviv in western Ukraine and CNN Tonight. John, thanks so much. I'm Jake Tapper. This is CNN Tonight, and I am live from Lviv, Ukraine, with breaking new developments on the Putin invasion of Ukraine and also that mass shooting back at home in a New York City subway. The gunman who opened fire inside a crowded subway car and detonated two smoke grenades, remains on the loose tonight. He shot 10 people and injured 13 others. At the height of the morning rush hour, police have identified and released the name of a so-called person of interest this evening. We'll bring you the very latest on the massive manhunt live from the scene shortly. But first, for the very first time, 48 days into this Russian onslaught in Ukraine, President Biden used the word genocide to describe the atrocities that Putin and his troops are committing here. Listen closely to his remarks in Iowa today. Your ability to fill up your tank, none of it should hinge on whether a dictator declares war and commits genocide in a half a world away. That is significant because until that speech, both Biden and the Biden administration have avoided using the term genocide, which is defined by the United Nations as acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group. And President Biden doubled down on that tonight. I call it genocide because it's become clearer and clearer that Putin is just trying to wipe out the idea of even being able to be a Ukrainian. And uh, the, mount, the evidence is mounting. We'll let the lawyers decide internationally whether or not it qualifies. But it sure seems that way to me. That is yielding some high praise from Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky this evening. He posted on Twitter, quote, true words of a true leader 
calling things by their names is essential to stand up to evil. We are grateful for U.S. assistance provided so far, and we urgently need more heavy weapons to prevent further Russian atrocities. Meanwhile, Vladimir Putin resurfaced today to try and somehow attempt to justify the terror that he's ordered and claim peace talks are at a dead end, although Ukraine says otherwise. Uh, He claims Russia was forced to invade Ukraine to help people, Putin said. Seriously. He's actually calling his invasion, quote, noble. He declared again he is saving Ukraine from Nazism. I remind you, once again, the leader of Ukraine is Jewish. Many of Zelensky's relatives were wiped out in the Holocaust. It is Russian actions now being compared to those of Nazis by many in Ukraine, including the mayor of the devastated city of Mariupol, who refers to the siege there as the new Auschwitz. Zelensky has estimated tens of thousands of individuals have been killed there. Fierce fighting is still ongoing in Mariupol for control of that southern port city. You can see plumes of smoke from shelling in residential areas above a shipping yard. You can also see Russian-backed military forces moving through streets near Mariupol in the Donetsk region. And as for reports yesterday of a possible strike involving chemical substance of some kind in Mariupol, there has been, as of now, no confirmation of that from either the Ukrainian government or the United States. But Secretary of State Tony Blinken did say this earlier today. We uh, had credible information that Russian forces may use a variety of riot control agents, uh, including tear gas, mixed with chemical agents that would cause uh, stronger symptoms uh, to weaken and incapacitate entrenched uh, Ukrainian fighters and civilians uh, as part of the aggressive campaign to take Mariupol. So this is a, a real concern. It's a concern that we had from before the aggression started. President Zelensky warns that the possibility of chemical weapons should be taken seriously. He also warns Russians have left tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of unexploded mines and other munitions after pulling out from northern Ukraine. CNN's Fred Pleitkin saw many of these mines up close. He joins us now live from the country's capital of Kiev. Fred. Hi there, Jake. And of course, uh, the talk of the town here tonight is the fact that Vladimir Zelensky praised President Biden for those words, as you've noted, saying they were, as he put it, true words from a true leader. And of course, one of the reasons why the Ukrainian president says that were some of the things that we've seen over the past couple of days as Russian forces have been expelled from the areas north of Kiev, where we've seen a lot of dead bodies being pulled out of destroyed houses and also, of course, saw that big mass grave in the suburb of Bucha, where so much killing took place. Now, I was able to speak to this country's prosecutor general at the edge of that mass grave because this country is currently launching a massive campaign to try and prove in courts what President Biden says he believes is already shaping up, in his opinion. And um, we do have to warn our viewers that what you're about to see is extremely graphic and very disturbing. Even as Russian troops mass in eastern Ukraine for what the U.S. believes will be a huge offensive, authorities in Kiev continue digging up bodies. 
painstaking work that goes hand in hand with investigating Russia's attack on Kiev and possible crimes committed by Vladimir Putin's invading troops. Prosecutor General Irina Venediktova is leading the charge. She spoke to me at the edge of a mass grave in the Kiev suburb of Bucha. For us, the best motivation is justice. And of course, we understand that all Ukrainians want fast justice, true and fast justice. That's why we do everything to document all evidence, all facts of war crimes that we have here in Ukraine. French forensic investigators are now also on the scene, not because Ukraine lacks expertise, but because Kiev wants to be as transparent as possible in the face of Russian disinformation efforts. We want to do our job absolutely open with standards of international humanitarian law. It's very high standards. That's why when here we have our international colleagues, we understand that they can see everything. They can see real situation here, real graves, real dead bodies. After Ukrainian forces managed to expel Russian troops from around Kiev and some other areas they'd occupied in Ukraine, authorities have discovered scores of dead bodies. Today, another six found in just one basement outside Kiev. The prosecutor tells me they are collecting evidence in thousands of cases. Now we started more uh, than 6,000 uh, cases. Uh, it's uh, cases, it's crimes, uh, war crimes, crimes against humanity, aggression crimes. And we started on the first days of war, we started the case about genocide. All this as Russia still claims its forces that invaded Ukraine have not harmed any civilians. On a visit to a spaceport with Belarusian strongman Alexander Lukashenko, Russian President Vladimir Putin again claimed his forces are fighting against would-be Ukrainian Nazis in what he calls a, quote, special operation. The goals are absolutely clear and they are noble, he said. I said it from the beginning and want to draw your attention to that. There are some in the U.S. at the top level who have spoken about a possible war crimes trial against Vladimir Putin. Is that something you think could ever be possible and it's something that you're working towards to provide evidence for? Uh, of course, I think that uh, everyone understands who is responsible for this war. That's why we do everything to uh, fix, to document uh, evidences. But we are here in Ukraine and actually understand who is responsible for all of this. The investigators' work is complicated by the fact that the war is still going on, and they can't reach many devastated areas like the encircled city of Mariupol, where Ukraine's president says tens of thousands have been killed. But Irina Benediktova says no matter how long it takes, she will press on. It's actually extremely important because if we will be successful as the prosecutors, I sure that we can stop such aggressions in the future. And Jake, just to give you an idea about some of the things that the Russians have put out there to try and discredit some of the things that the Ukrainians are doing, that investigation, they've said that the bodies there are fake. Obviously, that's a false claim. They've also said that all the people were alive when the Russians left and were probably killed by the Ukrainians, even though satellite images show the exact opposite to be true. And today, Vladimir Putin uh, at that rocket plant that you saw there in the report, he also said that he believes all the images coming out of Bucha are fake as well, Jake. Now, the Russians also said they were never going to invade Ukraine. 
Fred Plytkin in Kiev, thank you so much. Appreciate that report. For more uh, on this, uh, let's now bring in a Ukrainian prosecutor who is working with the prosecutor general that you just heard from uh, in Fred's uh, report. Yuri Belousov oversees the department that investigates torture and so-called enforced disappearance. Uh, Yuri, thank you so much for joining us. So uh, as we talk about the various crimes that your office is investigating, uh, I, I want to ask you, um, and just first I want to remind our viewers how these crimes differ, um, because there's, there's war crimes, which are violations of international humanitarian law carried out during armed conflicts. There's crimes against humanity, which are widespread or systemic attacks against civilian populations. And then, of course, there's genocide. That's the intentional destruction of a people in whole or in part. Now, obviously, some of these crimes overlap with one another. Uh, but talk to us about why the distinction among these different crimes matter and what it means for how you do your job, how you gather evidence. Thank you so much. Uh, so let's start from the point that I'm investigating the torture. I'm dealing with tortures uh, for many years. Uh, before war started, we mostly were focusing on law enforcement, Ukrainian law enforcement who abused the power. But for many years dealing with torture, we never thought that uh, the situation could be so so bad because uh, the torture cases we are facing now which been committed by Russians. So they're just like four terrible movies. I don't know, because uh, we never thought that people could be so cruel. In Ukraine, you know, we just call it, we're just facing the clear evil of what, what they do. That's why investigation is, is, is different. Because first of all, too many victims. Uh, a lot of them were already tortured to be, until they would be killed. Uh, children, women, men, older men, so they tortured anyone who, who they saw, I think. And sometimes, uh, because torture always has a purpose, that the one of the part of the investigation, you should prove what the purpose was, mostly to get the information. But here, in this situation, um, they tortured people maybe just because of fun, I don't know. Sure, they sometimes they wanted to torture someone to show that they're superior or whatever. But during the investigation, what is different for war crime, we see that tortures and enforced disappearance is a part of the policy. It's not just the actions of one soldier or two soldiers. We see that they do it deliberately. We see that they bosses, the heads of units, they knew what their soldiers were doing. And we also understand that the torture is, a, again, it's a part of Russian policy in Ukraine, how to suppress the population, mm. how, how to follow them to obey Russian rules, Russian world or whatever. So the prosecutor general um, told Fred Pleitkin in that piece that just ran that there are already more than 6,000 uh, cases, war crimes cases that have been opened. This is just based on the areas that you've been able to access, such as Bucha, other areas around Kyiv that does not include, for example, uh, Mariupol. Is that right? Yes, yes. So we, we don't. It's not just the Kyiv. It's in some other regions also, mostly Kyiv region. But we could imagine how many cases would be in Mariupol because, as, as the president says, as we know officially, more than twenty thousand people were killed in Mariupol. But no one knows right now. It just killed people. How many people would be tortured, or how much would them 
kidnapped or how many of them were forcibly moved to Russian territory. We just could imagine. It's thousands, thousands of people. We're hearing also of these thousands of mines and unexploded shells uh, that the Russians apparently left behind. They're being uh, recovered in the north. Um, Zelensky calls that a war crime. Uh, explain that, if you would. The war crime is mostly the well, their so-called rules of war. It means that if the two countries, so within one country there's a conflict and two sides are fighting with each other, they should follow definite rules. First of all, they shouldn't, for any reason, to injure civilians. What has been done in Kharkiv, for example, we just, they just bomb houses where people live, not military camps, not military units, which is according to the so-called rules of war, but the, to bomb civilian houses, to, to send uh, rockets in, in, in front of, I don't know, to, towards the civilian objects. That's the kind of war crime. In Kharkiv, they just, which is the eastern Ukraine, northern eastern Ukraine, they just bomb with so-called different types of mines, and mines are everywhere there. They, they, they use special parachutes when they bomb just dropping down to, to cars, to streets. They are lying on the, on the concrete when the children are walking around. They could touch this bomb because children do, know, do, not, do not know what is that. And this is definitely a war crime. Mm-hmm. So any, 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 crime, any killings of civilians during the war, it's a war crime. It's one, one different definitions, but just to give you the idea that uh, violations of rules of war and, and injury of civilians, it's definitely a war crime. What type of injury could be? It could be occasional, inoccasional torture. It's a deliberate injury of uh, population. Yeah. And uh, that's the worst war crime could be. All right, Yuri uh, Belousov, thank you so much for your time this evening. Best of luck uh, in your investigations there. We're going to have much more from Ukraine this hour. Uh, But up next, uh, the breaking news in the United States, that manhunt is still underway for the subway mass shooter. Police in New York City are now asking for your help in finding a person of interest. Have you seen this man? A live report from the crime scene, and we will talk to someone who was in the subway car. That's next. We'll continue our war coverage live from Western Ukraine in just a moment. But first, uh, the breaking news in the United States, New York City police this evening naming a person of interest as they search for the gunman in this morning's mass shooting at a Brooklyn subway station. Police say this man, Frank James, rented a U-Haul connected to the shooting. The key to that truck was found at the scene, which led officers to the van this afternoon. James has not been named a suspect. Police say the gunman was captured in eyewitness cell phone video. Other witnesses and other witness video shows the chaos after police say the gunman threw smoke grenades before firing shots at New York commuters. And then his gun jammed and he fled the scene, we're told. Ten people were shot. Five are in critical condition this evening. Our Shimon Prokopez is at the scene tonight. Uh, Shimon, what's the latest? Yeah, police are revealing tonight, Jake, that the suspect, the gunman here, fired 30 
three times into that crowded subway car with people trapped inside after he threw a smoke grenade to distract many of the riders. And then he started firing, trapping many of those riders. We've also learned that police were able to identify him through this U-Haul key that was left. But sources also say there was a credit card, a credit card that was left behind that linked uh, this person uh, to the scene. And so they're out trying to find him. No word on where he is tonight. Police out here uh, looking for him. There's a massive manhunt here all across New York City as they search for him. But also the NYPD stepping up security all across the city and also the mayor because they are concerned over social media posts that this person of interest uh, posted about the mayor and being unhappy with some of the mental health programs. So as a result, the NYPD says they stepped up security for the mayor along across the city as the manhunt continues uh, for the shooter and also, Jake, this person of interest that they've identified. Shimon Prokopes, thank you so much. Uh, now I want to uh, bring in uh, someone who was on that subway car. You can see him actually right here on the screen rushing out of the train, looking a bit dazed. His name is Armin uh, Hayrapetian, uh, and he joins us now. Armin, thanks so much for joining us. I know that you weren't physically injured, but that is a traumatic event to have lived through. How are you doing? Thanks for having me, I'm good. Uh, and as you mentioned, I'm one of those lucky passengers who didn't get hurt. And for those passengers who were injured, especially in a critical condition, I wanna wish them a full and speedy recovery. Yeah, we all, we all are sending our, our prayers and best wishes to those individuals. Um, take me back to this morning, Armin, when the subway car began filling up with smoke and then you heard gunshots. What, what do you remember? What, what did you think at the time was happening? Well, sure, it started as a regular morning. I took Manhattan bound and train to work and I was standing next to the end door of the subway car, you know, the one you can pass from one car to another. Uh, as we were approaching to 36th Street Station in Sunset Park, and we were still in the tunnel. Uh, I look at my right side and notice the train began to fill with smoke and people start running towards me. Uh, first, I thought it was probably one of those electrical fire under the track because I couldn't see the shooter. I was just seeing people running toward me and there was a smoke behind them. And I was kind of trying to calm them. Basically, they probably saw the guy with the gun, but in my mind, it's just a fire. So. I was like, don't panic, it's going to get worse if you panic. Uh, but I didn't know what was going on. And then probably 20, 30 seconds later, the shooting started. At one point, I realized I'm on the floor. I don't remember how that happened. Probably I got pushed aside. But I was still confused and I didn't know what was going on because it sounded like fireworks. I think some of the witnesses also mentioned that. So I thought maybe somebody doing prank or something. And again, however, I was very shocked from that scene where people hurting each other in the chaos that follow the shooting, especially when I saw a lady with a small girl trying to escape. That scene was really horrible. And I wasn't thinking about shooting. It wasn't on my mind. It was just people really hurting each other by panicking. And the yeah. shooting felt you like said it, it lasted for... Yeah, go, go ahead, please. Go, no, 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 you. I'm sorry. Yeah, the shooting felt like it lasted for nearly two or maybe three minutes. And uh, 
at one point, I realized one of the guys who were next to me on a floor, his leg was all covered with blood. And I asked him, is this your blood? Are you bleeding? He didn't say anything. And then I realized the, the floor, like the floor entirely was covered with blood. Then I got it. It's, it's somebody's shooting. But at that point, we were lucky. The train was very close to the next stop. We were also lucky because we were also having trouble to breathe. At, at one point, I realized I can't breathe. But thank God, doors were open. And again, we were we were very lucky. We were that close. It would probably take two. It, it took like the whole thing took like two minutes. Well, we're so glad you're okay, Armin. Hey, Repetian, uh, thank you so much for your time this evening. Uh, and get some rest. It's been a horrible day. Thank you so much for being Thank with you. us. Back to the war in Ukraine. Uh, we're going to shine a light on a small town that fought off the Russians any way townspeople could, and they won. Ed Lavendera joins us to show us some of the good that is happening there now. That's next. Welcome back to Lviv. Here's a story that really exemplifies the bravery of the average Ukrainian residents of a small farm town, Bashtkana, took on Russian troops who had attacked civilians in their town, and they won. It's an incredible story of resilience and resistance. Ed Levandera talked to the residents, and he joins us now live from Odessa. Ed? Hey, Jake, you know, well, this is a story of one small town that, you know, they might have had a success in fighting back the Russians. But you also learn that in this war, when you're near the front lines, the fighting to save lives never really ends. One look at these massive craters in the small Ukrainian town of Bashtanka near Mykolaiv. And it's not hard to imagine the horror inflicted by Russian forces bombing this neighborhood. Bashtanka Mayor Oleksandr Bergovi brought us here. He says the Russian plane that dropped the bomb circled over these homes several times before unleashing the explosive attack. This is a simple, peaceful town, he says, with just ordinary people, no military. Farming is what we do here to feed the country and the world. There was a 70-year-old man in this house peeling potatoes when this bomb struck. What happened to him? God decided not to take him away. He tells me the man survived. For more than a week in March, this little town of 12,000 people fought off the Russians any way it could. Town council member Vitaly Homersky put out a Facebook plea that if anyone knew how to fire a cannon, they should race out to help. A humble force of about 100 people pushed the Russians out. More than 170 buildings were damaged. The charred wreckage was left all over town. But the mayor tells the story of one fighter who became an instant legend, a 78-year-old man who was told he was too old to fight. Instead, he made a Molotov cocktail and threw it at a Russian artillery system, blowing it up. We've asked to speak with the man, but we're told by city officials that they're protecting his identity to keep him safe. The town might have won the battle, but this war never ends. Bashtanka is now a frontline refuge for thousands of Ukrainians hoping to escape. Every day at this church, buses drop off refugees fleeing Russian-occupied areas just a few miles away. 
Zakruzetska Ruzlana says she left the city of Hershon after enduring weeks of bombardment with her two children and nieces. They break into people's homes every night, drag people out, beat them up. My neighbors were beaten up. Thank God they're still alive. They're probably doing that to scare people, so they're always in fear. It was horrible there. Every day people are going crazy, to be honest. It's intolerable. The children, the tension is terrible. You don't know if you'll wake up alive. Escaping alive is a dream, as we found closer to the front lines. The nearby village of Yavkino has endured weeks of shelling. You can see the munition and the shrapnel. You can see this, this building over here peppered with holes. As we meet with the village headman, it's clear the fighting isn't over. What is that noise? Yes, they are firing, he says. Alexander Kovriga tells us Russians fired cluster artillery at a group of young people charging their phones in this spot. They do it on purpose so people will panic, he tells me. We understand that there was a refugee, 17 years old, who came here trying to escape and she was killed? Lydia Dominica couldn't escape the Russian strikes, a young woman trying to reach Bashtanka. Her mother says she was studying food production and shared these photos so her daughter cannot be forgotten. And Jake, I want to point out that, you know, as we were reporting this story, we kept hearing about this 17-year-old who had been killed by Russian strikes. But nobody knew her name. Nobody knew where she was from exactly. And we tried real hard. I asked our fixer and translator to do everything he could to help us track down uh, the family of this young woman. Um, and after working the phones, he did. Costa was able to uh, reach his mother and that is how we were able to bring to you uh, this young woman's name, a picture of her, uh, and, and all of that. And when we called the mother, she sobbed as she told us her daughter's name and what had happened to her. You know, it's important to put a, a name and a face with all of the innocent victims of this war. Jake? So many of them. Ed Lavendera, thank you so much. Appreciate that. President Biden vowed last month that the U.S. would respond, quote, in kind if Russia were to use chemical weapons in Ukraine. So what happens if those new, as of now, unconfirmed reports of chemical use turn out to be true? I'll discuss with a former Secretary of Defense. That's next. Continuing now from Lviv, there are growing concerns this evening that Russia may have used chemical weapons in its bid to take over the southern port city of Mariupol. And while U.S. and other Western officials say they cannot confirm these reports as of now, the Pentagon says it's not out of the realm of possibility that Russia would turn to riot control agents to try to mask their use of chemical weapons. This could be a tactic they might employ, which is to... to um to try to mask a potential more serious chemical attack with with uh, riot control agents. Um, um, again, it, it comes from a mosaic of, uh, of information we've gleaned. The Russians have certainly proven uh, more than willing to use uh, uh, chemical weapons when it suited them in the past. 
Let's discuss this with William Cohn. He's a former Secretary of Defense under President Clinton. Before that, he was a Republican senator from Maine. Secretary Cohn, good to see you. What do you make of these reports on the use of riot control agents, which could theoretically include, as Secretary Blinken said, tear gas mixed with chemical agents? How would that disguise a more serious chemical attack? And how do U.S. officials go about confirming uh, if this is true? Well, we have to gather the uh, evidence uh, from uh, the people who have been affected by this or destroyed by this. It's going to take time to do that. And I think what the administration is doing is trying to uh, have a preemptive strike, so to speak, on preparing people uh, that this is what we know uh, Putin has done in the past. He's used chemical weapons uh, in uh, Syria and elsewhere. We know he's used it on uh, his political opponents. So uh, I think we have to gather the evidence. But In the meantime, uh, we have to recognize one man has disrupted the economic well-being of the the world. Uh, He's created a humanitarian disaster on an unprecedented scale. And I think, um, you know, he has set the rules of the game that we have to abide by. So I think it's what is taking place as more and more evidence is uh, coming out of the, the plunder which he's engaged in. I think it's going to change the rules of the game, I think, for us, I would hope for us, and when President Zelensky says, give me the weapons, I need words, yes, but I need weapons more. I think this changes the calculus. It should change the calculus on the ground where we provide uh, President Zelensky with air power, something he has called for for some time now. And hopefully that would do something to change events on the ground. And the only way we're ever going to see any kind of a negotiation, if possible, is if we change the calculus on the ground where Putin is losing and Zelensky is winning. So the air power discussion a few weeks ago that I think the Americans quashed was that uh, the Polish government was going to give the Ukrainians these Soviet-era MiGs that the Ukrainians know how to fly, uh, but the Poles wanted them to take off from the NATO base, the U.S. base in Germany, I guess, so that it would be, it would have some sort of NATO sign-off, uh, and the U.S. wouldn't do that. You are saying that you think the U.S. should. Uh, I have come to that conclusion, yes. Uh, the fact that Putin can say, I am going to destroy this country, but you can't, you'll have to play by my rules, which means no rules for him, and rules for us in terms of what weapons we can provide uh, Zelensky, President Zelensky, to fight this war that has been waged against him. So I think there has to be a change of the rules because Putin has indicated there are no rules for him, just for us. So a senior defense official says that the U.S. will send more weapon systems uh, to Ukraine, but they are weapon systems that will require additional training Can that be done? Can you train Ukrainians to use a a tank or any sort of other uh, complex weapon system in the middle of a war? It's very difficult to do. I think we are uh, training as much as we can uh, on Ukrainian soil and elsewhere. But uh, there may be drones uh, that uh, we can train them rather quickly on that would be suicide drones, switchback, uh, and, and so forth. Uh, so I think that they're, we're capable of giving them a, a level of capability they don't have now that they could be trained rather quickly, not immediately. But at least it would increase their morale. They're getting more that they know that they can now win this battle. Uh, they've proved that they can defeat 
uh, the Russian soldiers, and this is what is really at the crux of this, this is really not a war between combatants. This is a war of terror, of annihilation being waged against the Ukrainian people. And so for President Biden to call it genocide, it's that. Uh, and uh, Secretary Albright, former uh, late Secretary uh, Madeleine Albright, and I co-chaired a task force to say, how do we prevent genocide? And one of the first things we said is, don't get hung up initially on definitions. We know what genocide is. Here are the elements that it comprise. I think there's no question what uh, he has done, Putin has done, is genocidal. Uh, there are other crimes he could be charged with. You went through uh, crimes against humanity, war crimes. Uh, and uh, Gordon uh, Brown, the former prime minister of the British, uh, said, well, there, why can't we charge him with the crime of aggression? Now, he has clearly uh, conducted aggression against a sovereign, independent country. And that's something that can be proven very quickly. The issue is he'll unlikely to be uh, prosecuted until he's out of office. And that's going to take the uh, Russian people uh, to turn him out of office. Former Secretary of Defense and Maine Senator William Cohen, thank you so much. It's good to see you again, sir. Coming up, current U.S. forces are staying out of Ukraine, but American veterans are increasingly choosing to come here on their own dime, on their own initiative, to help train Ukrainian soldiers. A retired Marine colonel on why this fight feels different than any other war he has known. That's next. I'm back with you live from Lviv as Russia begins its offensive strike on eastern Ukraine. The United States has already provided $1.7 billion in military aid to Ukraine. But as the number of civilian casualties rises, will this be enough? I spoke to a retired U.S. service member who stepped into this fight. Current U.S. service members are not in Ukraine. But U.S. veterans... They damn sure are. At an undisclosed location in Ukraine, a retired U.S. Marine, veteran Colonel Andrew Milburn, is training Ukrainians to fight the Russians. Milburn knows what it's like on the front lines. An American who grew up in the U.K., he has served in Somalia, Libya, Afghanistan, and Iraq. You know, I went through the Battle of Fallujah, um, but I would rather do that again. Than, uh, than confront uh, you know, a 12-hour barrage of Russian artillery like the, you know, the one we're seeing. Having retired from the U.S. military in 2019, Milburn runs an organization that brings in other former Special Forces members to assess the needs of various militaries. After losing the Battle of Kyiv, leaving behind devastation and evidence of atrocities, the Russians are now turning to the eastern flank of Ukraine to what will likely be a series of large-scale battles. Ukrainian military at large is more adaptive than the U.S. military. And I think I think I feel justified, I mean, uh, qualified to say that. This more open, less wooded terrain in the east could be more challenging for the Ukrainian military, which was able to rely on guerrilla tactics and calling in targeted strikes in the north. It is going to be a significant challenge. The Russians are much stronger in the, in the defense. Milburn trains ordinary Ukrainians to fight in the resistance as well as training more elite Ukrainian special forces like Mikola. Ukrainian successes, Mikola says, are because of help from the U.S., other NATO countries, and individuals like Milburn. Also, because of your help, we, we, we were quite successful with the first attack. So Russians uh, leave our territory not for their own wish. They, they, they lose a lot of 
uh, troops, a lot of uh, tanks, a lot of arm vehicles. Uh, we were using we were using modern uh, European and American uh, anti-tank missiles, and they, they lost a lot. He knows what's to come will be tough. We need more. Uh, now, yes, you're right. We have a pause, but it's not. It's it doesn't mean that uh, war is stopped already. Milburn agrees. The Ukrainians still need a great deal. They need drones, right? They need drones with a, um, a range longer than the DJ-1. They need secure radios because they need to communicate. Those are very basic things. They need medical equipment. Even upgrading the basic equipment they already have could make a big difference, he says. For a lot of times, they're, just, uh, they're, they're coordinating by cell phone or by uh, just, you know, kind of regular Motorola radios, which can be intercepted, geolocated, jammed. So anyone who's been in any Western military would be astounded. But weapons and equipment are not the only need. Training, he says, is key. They lack medical training. And, uh, you know, evidence of that is if you talk to Ukrainian medics, um, there are some horror stories out there. So uh, injuries that would be easily survivable in Iraq or Afghanistan by U.K. or U.S. forces, soldiers, um, Ukrainians are dying from here. Milburn is proud of his time in uniform. He is proud to be a Marine. But there is something purer about this fight, he says, than the others he has fought. But frankly, you know, serving in Iraq and Afghanistan, especially Afghanistan after the debacle back in, you know, it was in August, I, it, 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 there was always a kind of moral ambivalence. There was always a feeling of being an invading army, all right? Even, even at the beginning of those conflicts when we thought our causes were good. So there was always that, it, it, there was always kind of that dissonance um, between the idealism that pulled you into the military and then what you found yourself doing. Here, there's no such thing. You've got one sovereign nation being invaded by another. And yes, to your point, when it comes down to it, it is evil, good versus evil. And this time I feel very squarely on the side of good. And our thanks to CNN producer uh, Vashko Kotovu who, who, for help with that story, vital help with that story. We'll be right back. Thank you so much for watching. I will be back tomorrow night at 9 p.m. Eastern for CNN Tonight again, live from Ukraine. And before then, I'll see you tomorrow afternoon on The Lead, which begins at 4 p.m. Eastern. Don Lemon Tonight starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.